Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about frequently asked questions. Questions that you ask about topics that you wanted to know about, things that you wanted to sermon to be preached on. And we come today to the last of those questions. And when I was growing up, I was told there were two things you didn't talk about in public. And those two things were politics and religion. So today, we're going to do both, all right? In fact, I remember growing up, and I was in high school. In my senior year of high school, I took driver's ed. And driver's ed was taught there by the um, a football coach that his basic title was the get-back guy. Do you know the get-back guy? Uh, in football, you got to make sure you don't go over the line onto the playing field. And so every team has got a get-back guy that just yells, get back, get back. That was this coach, and he taught driver's ed. And, and when we got to the part where we drove, when he had a group, he, he, he segregated us in genders. And so the girls drove one day, the boys drove another. And when the boys drove, we always went down. The route took us to Big Boy Junction. Now, I'm sure many of you in this room, in fact, I'm sure most of you have never been to Big Boy Junction. It's right next to Finley, right around uh, off a suburb of Dyersburg. Uh, over in West Tennessee, but Big Boy Junction had this famous gas station where they had the best chicken livers you could imagine. How many of you out there like chicken livers? Let me see those hands. There we go. And so as we get to this place and we're getting ready to go into this place, Coach looked at me and he said, Larson, I know you're going to be a preacher someday. At least that's what you tell me. When we walk into this place, don't you mention a word about the Bible or about the president, and we'll be all right. Just wanted me to know that those two topics were off, off limits. Well, the truth is that in churches, sometimes you can get in trouble by how much or how little you talk about politics. I heard about one pastor who got a letter one week from a lady that said that she could not believe that the pastor had talked about politics on Sunday that she could not imagine how he could call himself a minister of the gospel and talk about politics. It was time he got his nose back into the Word and out of the paper. He came to find out she wasn't even at the service on Sunday. She just heard about it. Two weeks later, he got a letter from one of his church members that said that he could not believe that the pastor would not let him put a political action committee's flyer into the Sunday morning worship bulletin because how could you call yourself a church and not be engaged in the politics that are going on in today? So he took them both to the elders meeting and said, what are we supposed to do? It's one of those situations that you either talk about it too little or too much. And part of that comes from the two sides of the issue. Today what we're going to talk about is, should Christians play the political game? Should Christians play the political game? And I'll tell you right now, the the basic thrust of this is going to be more so about the church and what we're to do. And I'll tell you from the very beginning, you're not going to hear any endorsements today. You're not going to hear any uh, particular political side talked about. You're not going to hear any political figures talked about. But we're going to talk about general principles of how involved Christians should be in politics. And there are two basic positions. There's one position that is the separatist and another that are the activist. One position is the separatist and the other is 
the activists and the separatists, what they basically believe is that there is a split between the sacred and the secular. That our church life shouldn't be involved in our political life. If you listen to mainstream media, a lot of times you'll hear talk about this. And in the last 8 to 12 years, there's been great discussion about whether or not faith and religion ought to play a part in politics. Much of the debate around the recent interviews by Rick Warren at Saddleback Church where both candidates were on the stage one right after the other and actually shared some time on a church stage from both political people and from churches was should there even be any interaction? There's this idea that there is a sacred secular split. There's also a a, a misunderstanding sometimes of the difference of living in a pluralistic society and a society of pluralism. Now, I know today when you walked in, you just said, boy, I hope that pastor tells me the difference between pluralistic societies and pluralism right now. That's what was on your mind, right? But there is a difference. A pluralistic society says that everybody puts their ideas out there, you argue for your idea, and when the one that wins, wins, you say that is the truth. That's the society we are supposed to be in. A society of pluralism says everybody's ideas are valid, everybody's ideas are equal, so we give everybody equal time and we don't decide what's true. There's also in our day, in my generation, what you call a functional separatism. And that just means that there are a group of people a little bit older than me and for the generation that are my generation and the one below that believe it doesn't really matter what we do anyway, so why even engage? I was talking with some people recently with the recent uh, county elections that we had, and I went to vote and uh, read some stuff online about that, and uh, that people kept decrying that nobody under 40 is voting. Now, the reality is that was a different election than it will be in November, and I'll be interested to see the numbers, but statistics seem to show that my age group has just disengaged from the political process in a lot of ways. Now, on the other side of the equation are the activists. The activists, particularly in Christian circles, believe that we ought to be very active in what is going on in political circles. They believe, first of all, that America has a special covenant relationship with God. Now, some people take that to the extreme. I don't know if you've heard this or not, but there are some Christian commentators out there that say if you look at the word Jerusalem, the middle of that word has three letters right together, U-S-A. Now, that's stretching it. I'll just tell you that. Amen? Amen? All right. If you see anybody on TV this afternoon and they got a big board behind them and they're telling you that, that's stretching it. In fact, I believe it's stretching it to talk about America's special covenant relationship with God as if we are the new Israel because Scripture is pretty evident that the new Israel is called the church. But they believe that we have a special covenant relationship. We are the new Israel. There are those that think that moral and cultural change comes best through politics. That if we get the right people in the right places, in the right offices, at the right time, we can make the right laws to change people. Now, I want you to understand that these people don't think it's just good enough to change the laws. They think you've got to change people. And they think politics is the best way. The final kind of presupposition of activists is, that churches ought to believe exactly whatever they believe. 
You know what's interesting about the activist side and the separatist side? Is it doesn't matter what your political spectrum is, whether it's conservative or liberal or moderate or independent or Green Party or reform, whatever it is. You can find people on all those political spectrums in either one of those two camps. So here's the thing. Can you see how confusing this can all be? That's why most pastors just don't say anything. They just don't talk about it. Because they're afraid they'll say too much and they'll get in trouble and they'll be on the cover of the Tennessean. Or they won't say enough and then they'll be accused of leaving some issues unsaid. So most pastors just avoid it. That's why some of you wrote questions and saying, Pastor, don't avoid it. Well, we're not avoiding it today. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about four truths from Scripture relating to this, and then we're going to talk about some implications. Now, we're going to have to plow some ground very quickly. I've got four passages of Scripture, and if we don't want to be here till 2 o'clock this afternoon, we're going to have to go very quickly, all right? Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to plow quickly, so I want you to say this with me, because you're going to have to turn in your Bibles. You're going to have to flip quickly. Say, I'm ready to plow. Can you say that? Say that. Now, some of you didn't say that. I saw. No moving. So we're going to say it again, and you've got to mean it this time. I want to hear it from the heart. I'm ready to plow. All right, take your Bibles and turn me to John chapter 18. And here's what I've done. Just for your convenience, I haven't marked my Bible, so I'll have to turn when you do, and I won't be there waiting on you. John chapter 18, verse, verses coming up in 36 and 37, and then verse 19 as well. And the first truth we're going to learn today is that we live in two kingdoms that are in conflict with each other. The reality is, since Jesus came, there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of the here and now, and there is the kingdom of the yet to be. Now you say, how can the kingdom of the yet to be be in a here and now? The truth is, I don't know, but it is. At least that's what Scripture teaches. John chapter 18. This is at the end of Jesus' life. It's actually in his trial before Pilate. And Pilate is asking him questions. And just to be honest with you, when you're looking through this passage of Scripture, it seems that Pilate is trying to give him every opportunity he can to, to get off, to, to be exonerated. He's trying to look for a way to release him or at least find some solid reason to convict him. Pilate can't find anything. And so he comes to verse 36. Actually, in verse 35, back up there. And Pilate looks at him, and he says, Am I a Jew? It was your people, your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Why are you here? Basically, Pilate's saying, he's saying, Give me a reason one way or the other. And Jesus responds, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate answers, so you are a king. See, Pilate's almost thinking, all right, I got to know that as a pastor, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus is establishing here, wait a minute, there are two kingdoms. There is Pilate's kingdom, it's the political kingdom, it's the earthly kingdom, and he is over that. Then Jesus says, but I have a kingdom that is not of this world. It is not of the here and now. It is of the future. And although it is existing now, it is a kingdom that will last forever. Pilate, you are a part of a kingdom that is temporary. One day you will pass away. One day this kingdom will pass away. But I rule over a kingdom that will never pass 
away. Turn over to chapter 19. In chapter 18, at the end of that, they try to figure out what's going on, and Pilate can't figure out anything. And so Pilate has him flogged, and then they bring him back. And Pilate is still looking for all of this stuff, trying to find what's happening. And when it's evident that it's going down, Pilate looks at him in verse 10 of chapter 19 and says, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? So he's still trying to give him a way out. And Jesus says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And this is what he says to Pilate, which is, if you're trying to get get away with something, is not the, the best thing to say, and that is, listen, you don't have any power over me. There are two kingdoms, and these kingdoms are in conflict constantly. Paul will write in Ephesians 6, as we've talked about, that our struggle that we come in contact with every day is not against flesh and blood, but against power and principalities. The idea that there is a spiritual realm, and that you and I are part of two kingdoms. Now, this is what we have to understand, and this is where we're going next. Not only are we in two kingdoms that are in conflict, but if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, then we have dual citizenship. We have dual citizenship. Turn to Mark, chapter 12. Just two books over, chapter 12. One of the things that was fascinating to me recently uh, with the Olympics that are going on is the number of Olympic athletes that were not born in the country for whom they were competing. You know, the, the women's basketball had a young lady who, uh, from from what I've read, I, I don't know anything about her, but I read a testimony by her and considers herself a believer. And I don't know, uh, I, I don't know her spiritual life. That's just from what I've read. But but she was not allowed on Team USA and desperately wanted to play in the Olympics. So she plays in a Russian league, and the Russians gave her dual citizenship, so she could play for the Russians. Now she received a lot of criticism here. She's one of these girls from, I think she's from Iowa, in the heartland, and is playing in the Olympics for Russia. And they ask her, what happens if you come to the last second shot, you're down by one, you're taking the shot for Russia trying to beat the United States? She said, I'd hit the shot, which caused a lot of problems with her in her hometown, I think. But the point there is that Russia granted her this dual citizenship, so she was, in fact, citizens of both America and of Russia. All those people that competed had to have dual citizenship. The idea that you're not just citizen of one country or the other. Jesus tells us, as we are believers in him, that there isn't a single citizenship. That we are citizens both of the country in which we live and of this kingdom that he has established. Now we get that in chapter 12 from an attempt by people to trick him. Chapter 12, verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. This is a trick question. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought the coin and asked them, whose portrait is that and whose inscription? And they replied, it's Caesar. 
Then Jesus has simply said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God. And they were amazed at him. They try to trick him. They try to get him to say, if he says, you got to pay your taxes, the Jews aren't going to be happy. If he says, you don't pay your taxes, Caesar was going to be happy. And he comes and basically says, listen, you have to give whatever God has called you to give to him, and you have to give whatever God has called you to give to the authorities. He says, you're dual citizens. Sometimes on television I'll hear uh, ministers or or seeing the paper about ministers that are upset with the current state of the government. And they'll, they'll propagate this idea that we should just completely withdraw ourselves from the government, from the culture, and get away from it. And what Jesus is telling his people here is that complete withdrawal from the culture in which we live is not an option. Now, I want to tell you, that works out differently in some Christian circles than others. I mean, we are all familiar with those, those leaders that take their people and been in the news recently, and they put them in, a, in, a, in a, a place where they're living all to their own, and they don't pay taxes, and they shelter everybody away, and they, they just hide from the culture. But even in the Christian culture, sometimes we have, like, our own little stuff. We don't interact with the world in general. We have our own Christian books and Christian music and Christian television and Christian movies and and Christian coffee houses and Christian businesses and all of that. And I'm not saying that that we shouldn't have Christians in the business world or, or making music or any of that. But this idea that we can somehow separate ourselves from the culture, wash our hands of it and say it's not our responsibility is not biblical. Scripture says right here that we have dual citizenship. That means we've got to be the best citizens we can in the United States of America. In Goodlettsville, White House, Hendersonville, wherever you might live, you need to be the best possible citizen you can be there, and you must also be the best possible citizen you can be of heaven. It's not either or. Now we'll talk in a minute what that means for us, but just understand that's a truth. Jesus, bring it to him, and he gets around the question, and he says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to the Lord what is to the Lord. Here's the third truth. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. I told you we were, we were moving. Romans 13. Here's the third truth. Human government ordained by God to restrain evil. Human governments are ordained by God to restrain evil. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority, say no authority, except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now I want to tell you that is a difficult verse in some settings. That is a difficult verse in some settings. The world's attention has been focused on China in recent days with the Olympics, and you realize some of the things that happen over there, and you realize that Scripture teaches that those authorities are not there except God allows them to be there. You look at places in Africa, Sudan, and Rwanda, and those places, and you see the atrocities that are happening, and you wonder how God can allow it. But Scripture teaches that those authorities are there that God has allowed it, that no one has authority that God could not take away. 
in a moment we'll talk about voting and, 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 and talk about your conscience and those kind of things. But here's the thing people sometimes worry about when it comes to the authorities is what's going to happen if so-and-so gets elected or if this happens in the election or if that happens in this election. And the reality is that no authority is there except by the allowance of God. Verse 2. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. For those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, part of that is to mean that there will be what he part of what he's saying there is is if you break the laws of the land, you better be prepared to pay the consequences. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to govern. You think he wants to make them realize they're God's servants? Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Here's what it says. God has established governments to restrain evil. I think we would all agree that, that people just kind of left to themselves with no rules or authorities can be a very difficult situation. Books have been written about what societies would look like in an anarchist kind of place. And that wherever humans have, have gathered, those most productive societies have always had people over in charge of them and rules that set up what ought to happen. And what Scripture teaches is that they are there and primarily as government to make sure that evil is not done. Now you say, yes, but what about those atrocities or those evils or those things that, that are in our society that, that are imperfect? What about the imperfections in our government? What I find interesting here is that Paul writes this to the Romans. The Romans were living in Rome. There you go. Now, Rome was not a nice place to live necessarily. Do you think there was corruption in Roman government? Yeah. You think that there were things in Roman government that people in the church would have said, I wish that was different? Yeah. But his point is that you can't have authority to tell people about what you believe if you're constantly breaking their authority. Now, here's where that exception comes, is you are to be a good citizen in the kingdom of which you are a part until it conflicts with being a good citizen in the kingdom of heaven. You see, what happens is until there is a law that you were caused to, you know, if they were to make a law next week that I could not get up and tell you that Jesus died for your sins, then it would be time for me not to be a good citizen. And that comes down to priorities. You know, there are some things in your life that, that remind you that there are priorities that you have to follow. And when it comes to the dual citizenship thing, it is not an equal citizenship. Your, authority, your, your conscience to heaven, your citizenship to heaven is more important to the one here. But the truth is that what the human governments are supposed to do is to restrain evil. That's why as churches, as Christians, we ought to fight for legislation that restrains evil. 
All right? We are to fight for legislation that restrains evil. I've heard this argument before. Particularly, I was talking to somebody one day, and I was talking about the issue of abortion, which I believe should not be allowed because it is an evil that kills a life. And so, therefore, in order to restrain evil, you should not kill a life. That's what I believe. I think that's what Scripture teaches. But we were talking to this person, and we were having this conversation, and he looked at me and he said, but you can't legislate morality. And if he's talking about the fact that you can't tell somebody what they are to believe in their hearts, you can't make it a law what they are to believe and why they're supposed to do something, then I agree, you cannot legislate morality. But the truth is, almost all legislation makes moral judgments. If you say, thou shalt not kill, and if you kill, then you are wrong, you're legislating morality. Well, who says killing is wrong? Well, it just shouldn't happen. You're legislating morality. The question is not, are we going to legislate morality? The question is, what morality are we going to legislate? And as Christians and as churches, we ought to fight for legislation that restrains evil. Here's the last thing. Turn to Matthew 28. Everybody still with me? Still plowing? Say, we're still plowing. Good. Matthew 28. Last passage of Scripture, and we're going to talk about some implications out of that. While human governments are ordained to restrain evil, here's what we have to understand. The church is ordained by God to make disciples. The church is ordained by God to make disciples. This is what I mean by that. We must never forget the mandate that Jesus Christ gave us to make disciples. If you look at that passage of Scripture, we talked about this last week in our uh, Sunday night Bible study. There's only one verb in that passage of Scripture that is the main verb. Everything else supports it. But the only verb in Matthew 28, in those last few verses of the Great Commission, in verse 18 and through 20, when Jesus says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The only word that is the main verb there is make disciples. That's what we're called to do. Now, the way we make disciples is we tell, we baptize, we teach them. But the goal is to make disciples. And so the first purpose of the church is not to be a political action committee. It is not to be people as a church that is out there telling people what to do politically. The first priority of a church is that we are to make disciples for the Lord. That we are to be going into the world and telling people about the love of Jesus Christ. That what I find often are that churches that get too involved in politics forget that the main thing is the main thing. In fact, in my studies uh, this semester for school, we're talking about the history of the church growth movement as my, uh, in my doctorate at work. And what we're reading is about uh, how it grew up. And one of the criticism people started giving in the church growth movement is they didn't care enough about social action. They were just concerned about growing their churches. And so one of these guys went out and did research, and what he found is the more politically active a church or denomination got, 
the less people they won to the Lord. And what that tells me is when you forget that the church is ordained by God to make disciples, you begin to go in a direction that doesn't allow the church to do what it's supposed to. Jesus says that we are to go and make disciples. It's his commission, baptizing them. And you say, well, he gave other commissions, and he did. Acts 1.8, he gives another commission. But he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The idea there is the same. We are to go and make disciples. We are to tell people about Jesus. We are to make sure our priorities are the same. When it comes to, well, what did he talk about and, and what we should be doing? You remember the, the commandment to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything will be added unto you. It goes back to priorities. He goes back to what's important. Let me tell you that one of the things that, that we all struggle with, I know, is priorities in our own lives. You know, you know how do you arrange everything together? And for me, it's how do I arrange um, family and, and church and relationship with the Lord and hobbies and, and things I like to do and things I enjoy doing and studying for my doctorate and all those things. And there are things that just remind you sometimes of what are really important in life. Just this morning when I walked in, and I hadn't seen Eli yet this morning. He's, I get here early, and sometimes I see him as he comes in, and sometimes I don't. And so I always look forward to when I come in here, I get the hug. And as Eli got ready to give me a hug, though, he gave me something else. He gave me a bracelet that he had made, and it's wearing on my arm. Some of you may have been sticking out wondering what I'm wearing up here. Apparently, he made it this morning. He's been working on it real hard. And it says simply on the bracelet, Lyle, I love you. Now, it's got all kinds of colors and pretty things. And he gave it to me and wanted me to wear it. Now, is there any way in the world I'm not going to wear this? No. Because it just reminds me of how important he is to me. And I remember that sometimes in my life I get those priorities out of order and my life starts to spin out of control. Churches are like ourselves. The church has certain priorities. And when we begin to let other things creep into that priority order, things begin to spin out of control. I have yet to be in a church that is focused on worshiping the Lord, glorifying Him, reaching people with the gospel and being in fellowship with one another as God's word commands us that is having major conflicts. Conflicts usually come from other issues that try to sneak into that priority list. Here are the implications. Three. First of all, let the church be the church. One of the guys in my Ph.D. work is a guy named Calvin Carr. Calvin was youth minister at First Baptist Jacksonville for many, many years. He has since moved on to the pastorate, but he uh, was youth minister under, if you're familiar with Southern Baptist history, a guy named Homer Lindsay, and then after that, Dr. Jerry Vines. And he used to say that one of the things I used to always say was, let the church be the church. And he remembers specifically one day when they dedicated a new sanctuary, and he talked about all the good things the church could be doing. The church could be involved in schooling. The church could be involved in political action. The church could be involved in ministry needs around the community. He said, but the moment we stop letting the church be the church, we're no longer a church. Now, he said it with the church. 
We're no longer the church. Amen. And here's the thing. The moment we start letting other things get in and we stop being the church, doing what God's called us to do. Now let me tell you that there are certain responsibilities that we have as Christians in the church. In fact, the Scripture is pretty clear on responsibilities that we have in our society. And the first one is this. We must pray. I want to tell you right now, there, there, there are websites out there. There are people out there. I know uh, even in our own church, within our women's ministry, Donnie Smith and Teresa Johnson have been doing a lot of focus on praying for the election that's coming up, praying that God's man will win, praying that we can do that. And the truth is we know that God allows all people that are in places of, of, of leadership, he, does, he gives them authority, uh, otherwise they wouldn't have authority, but that doesn't mean we don't pray that his will would be done completely. And we must pray. But let me tell you this, if November rolls around, I don't even know what the election date is. But if November rolls around and we know who the president is the next day, hopefully it won't be a drawn-out process, that day you need to start praying for whoever the president is, whether you voted for him or not. You pray for him and you pray for our government and you pray also for the spiritual climate of our nation. You pray for our leaders. One of the things that I think has happened in our society over the last few years, and it probably started in the mid-90s, and it probably had some origin in the church in the way that we treated a particular president in the mid-90s, was that we became so so conflicted in our views, so divided in the parties, that no longer can you say a good word about the other party's guy. And as a result, it becomes confrontational. And I remember in the mid-90s being in a church group discussion, we were talking about the particular president of the time uh, who was in the midst of some things that were not glorifying to God. And people were just accusing him left and right. And I remember just saying, have you prayed for him? And you would have thought I had said something akin to being against the Bible completely. It doesn't matter who's in that office. Our responsibility is to pray. It doesn't matter who our mayors are. It doesn't matter who our government officials are. We are to pray. If this is an area of your life that you think, I sure would like to pray more, there is a great prayer site. It's Presidential Prayer Team. I think it's presidentialprayerteam.org. You can just put that in Google, for those of you who know Google and all that. And it will give you step-by-step things to pray for. Here's the second thing. Don't expect the government to achieve what only the church can accomplish. Let me just tell you that if you're expecting a spiritual revival to come by getting the right people in the right offices, then you're expecting the wrong thing. If you're expecting a revival to come because we start legislating things differently, then you're expecting the wrong thing. Scripture is very clear that the way revival, spiritual renewal comes is when my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. In fact, I left out one part of that because it gets on some toes sometimes. Because it says if those people who would humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. 
when the church starts being the church and starts doing what God has called us to do and repenting of what God calls us to repent of and living for what God calls us to live for, that's when spiritual renewal and hope will come. And if you're expecting it from the government, you're expecting it from the wrong place. Now, here's the last thing, and just a little note. Don't you expect the church to accomplish what only individual believers can achieve. Now, this is where I tell you about your responsibility. Not only are you supposed to pray, not only does Scripture teach us that we're supposed to teach and preach truth, righteousness, and justice, not only are we supposed to model what God is doing, but we must be informed citizens that are doing what God's called us to do. So don't expect from the pulpit for me to give you a list of issues to vote on, who the candidates are, what they believe, and then say, now you just make up your own mind. You need to do that work yourself. You need to understand what God's Word says. You need to understand what Scripture says. What Scripture says about the sanctity of life. What Scripture says about taking care of the poor. What Scripture says about issues that are out there like biomedical stuff, about cell, uh, stem cells and cloning. You need to understand what Scripture says about that. You need to understand what Scripture says about taking care of the environment and where our responsibility lies there. You need to understand and seek and devour what Scripture says about those issues. Then find out for yourself what candidates or positions are out there and then make your decision through prayerful consideration. Now, the thing is, that's a process, and some of us are tired of the process already. Amen? I mean... I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not really excited about the fact that my TV is going to be covered in the next two or three weeks with political conventions. Now, some of you love that stuff. You can't wait. More power to you. But I do know that as a pastor, 